1: Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Laura Ha Reisman. Today we have Jinnah Kim speaking about her book, Postcolonial Grief The Afterlives of the Pacific Wars in the Americas, published in 2019 by Duke University Press. Dr. Kim is Assistant Professor in Communication Studies at California State University, Northridge. Jinnah, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Laura. It's such a pleasure to be here.
1: Um, so I'd like to begin by asking you a little bit about yourself um, and how you came became interested in this topic.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, I am a child of immigrants. I moved to the United States when I was eight years old from Seoul, South Korea. And my desire to learn more about the place I left has really... Um, you know it has really driven me ever since I started college but you know but primarily um, I was really interested in writing this book I think a long time ago I was an undergraduate student at Columbia University in the 1990s when um, we had a strike for Asian American studies and one of the one of the things that happened out of that experience was that we hired David Eng who is a literary scholar and works on the idea of racial melancholia um, and taught me about topics like post-memory and the ways in which the traumas of the past continue to impact um, the second generation, even if you haven't lived through it. And, you know, even though back then, because I hadn't really been educated in Asian American studies, that was something that I got the chance to do in graduate school. um, You know, a lot of what he, um, you know, talked, a lot of what he taught us just resonated with me on an almost... um, Affective level, you know, I didn't really have the intellectual language to explain it, but the idea that somehow um, immigrant groups, particularly Asian immigrant groups, um, carry with them the traumas of the past that transcends the U.S. space and also um, your generation, it um, it stayed with me, and it's uh, it's uh, you know in all of my book now and and the works I'm thinking about for the future, um, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, that formative, you know, moment, um, you know, of, of being a part of the start of something like Asian American studies, when I was a college student, um, there was in a period of two years, there were um, six Asian American, Korean American students in particular who committed suicide or were killed um, at Columbia University. And there was no language um, for any of us who are students or faculty or administration to talk about the particular nature of that trauma. Um, and so you know this is this is all kind of you know um you know circular but you know i i felt i feel like the the work that i'm that this book postcolonial grief which you know looks at how korean and japanese diasporas in the united states negotiates the the will to stay silent about the the histories of us militarism in the pacific arena it it feels like it was a project that started a long time ago um and and um, made sense for me, you know, through many different, um, through through a lot of, 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 through many layers of experiences and knowledge that um, that I started with in college. And then um, because of David Eng's um, guidance, I um, ended up getting a PhD in cultural studies at UC San Diego with um, Lisa Lowe. Um, I worked primarily with Dr. Lisa Lowe and Lisa Yoneyama, and I think that they really helped me um, bridge my interest in what's happening in the U.S. and what's happening across the Trans-Pacific and to really um, reconfigure both of those spaces. So, so yeah, I'm a child of immigrants who ended up writing a book, and it's pretty amazing.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's so important to kind of speak to your own experience when you're, you know, um, well you know basically going through grad school and you know studying something um and 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 it reflects a part of your your history as well um so so i definitely got that sense from reading your book as well um, and uh, yeah i was um i think uh the one thing that um Yeah, I guess I'd like to say, like, I I really liked actually the title of your book. um, And I think it really speaks to a particular growing subset of of academic writings on the Trans-Pacific and war redress, uh, post-colonial and settler colonial relations um, that continue to impact our everyday lives. And um, you've already mentioned Lisa Yonayama. And yeah, when I was reading your book, I was actually thinking about her work, uh, Hiroshima traces, uh, as well as the more recent book that she had written on cold uh, called Cold War Ruins, um, and then you also you know mentioned how how deeply impacted you were by David Eng's book or Eng's work, um, and so I'm wondering if you can. Speak a bit about how where how you situate your work within um, all these disper disparate fields um, that that really intersects. So Asian American studies, Asian diaspora, diasporic studies, um, or Asian trans Pacific studies, and, and probably other studies I'm not really um, mentioning here. Yeah, <laughs>
0: um, yeah. You know, I it was it's sort of immeasurable to me how much my growth in what I thought Asian American studies and what it's possible to do, um, you know, how much I grew having moved from New York. You know, I got my undergraduate degree in English at Columbia um, and then moving to UC San Diego, moving to California, where Asian American studies was not new. It was historic. um, And in fact, it was um, by the time I got there in 2000, it had really surpassed a lot of what I knew to be Asian American studies. I thought about Asian American studies as reading Asian American literary studies as reading books about people born in the United States, or you know, people who are you know recent immigrants, people sort of like me, but you know, um, with a different kind of a deeper connection to um, you know, to to the land by being born here. And one of the things that um I realized when I went to graduate school in two thousand was that um Asian American studies and um. Uh, An Asian well, you know that Asian American studies had already surpassed the um, the discrete boundaries of the nation and was really asking questions about how to build these um, previously verboten relationship to and across the trans Pacific. Um, And I think Lisa Lowe's work was really seminal in doing that in recognizing the ways in which um, Asian American and Asian immigrant people are punished for the kind of you know, kind of love and connection that they main t- maintain in the diaspora and the need to deny that history and the ways that it infiltrates Asian American literature. Um, and so, I, you know, I think by the time I started my graduate degree in 2000, I was already influenced by this shift or this turn um, toward the Trans-Pacific, toward recuperating both recuperating these histories of connections um, that had been silenced and, you know, um, the in kind of intellectual connections that were never really allowed to be established. And so one of the things that I talk about in uh, my book, in the third chapter, um, which looks at um, the genre of film noir and the ways that it is um, indebted to um, not just the history of U.S. Um, atomic bombing in um, In in Japan, but also the kind of artistic legacies, you know, Japanese um, cinema and film, you know, and so forth. You know, I think that that um, it it just became quite, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, easy for me to be able to articulate that. And you know, when I first started this book, I didn't know that this was the book that I was going to write. I moved to California, and one of the things that um, you know, really struck me both in the culture and the political formation is how much Asian American and Latino and Chicano communities um, had in common in terms of um, immigration histories, the kinds of themes um, that are significant to, you know, both cultural and political formations. And so I first started this book as a kind of comparison between how Asian Americans and Latinos um, negotiated, um, you know, Los Angeles. And that took me on this really wonderful Three or four years, where I went to Latin America and did a lot of research, particularly on the Korean diaspora in Peru, Argentina, and Brazil. Some of which is still reflected in the book, in the fourth chapter, um, you know, specifically. But, um, but I, you know, I it it, you know, when I first. I started my um, when I first entered Asian American studies it was to recognize its national limits and also to think about its um, identitarian limits that it um, that it that it as a field cannot just uh, attend to Asian racialized bodies but um, you know must see itself in relation to other racial forms so that's a sort of like the, the kind of intellectual history of um, how this book uh, began to develop but you know, a few other things happened while I was writing my dissertation and um, and working on my book. You know, one of the most formative was um, the Virginia Tech shooting. And I don't really talk about that that much in the, you know, it's mentioned, I think, very briefly in the footnotes. I write a lot in the footnotes for some reason. But um you know, when the, the shooting happened uh, with Cho Sang-hui in, um, at Virginia Tech and then a le- year later, you know, at Oikos when um, another Korean international, uh, uh, um, at, uh, Cho Sang-hui was a Korean-American at Oikos when a Korean international student um, also uh, was a part of a a mass shootout. You know, it revived for me this um you know this I, I talked about it as kind of a feeling you know this sense that i knew that there are these legacies and traumas of that the korean diaspora lives with that's specifically related to um you know by grad school i could give it a language and a name that is specifically tied to you know us military um uh you know growth in korea and the the militarization of you know korean um culture in general you know um those events, I think, um, kind of redirected me from uh, thinking about my thinking about Asian American or Korean Americans in comparison, um, with, um, other ethnic groups and to be thinking, to be honing more in on the, um, the legacies of military expansion and, um, and the ways that that impacts, um, you know, different, um, different uh, racialized and different immigrant communities. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how, um, the different pieces of the book come together. My interest in what's happening in Latin America, uh, my interest in thinking about not just the Trans-Pacific but also the Pacific Rim. It, um, it all kind of you know comes together through this larger intellectual journey. I end up um, participating in grad school.
1: Great, yeah, um, yeah. I, I actually that that's that's so that's so helpful to get that explanation because um, I was so curious about. Um, that chapter you're talking about in terms of, um, you know, you talk about Alberto Fujimori, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, And this is very helpful to get a sense of like your trajectory in terms of, you know, you, you started off with um, you know, thinking about uh, maybe a comparison, and then we see that uh, we see how that kind of works out in in the book itself. Um, and I I very much agree with you in terms of you know it's just it's so difficult to um, you know when we're thinking about these disciplines, uh, we kind of think of them. Uh, still in these sort of vacuums, but, you know, as your book very much shows, it's, you know, there's so much sort of intersectionality that's happening um, with with all of these disciplines, and you can't really talk about one community without talking about another. Um, So, uh, and I I think that, you know, you reflect that in your work. Um, So, yeah. Um, So then the next question I have for you Um, is the concept of melancholia, um, which I think is a a key trope throughout your work. Um, And I wonder if you can explain um, how this term functions in your book and what kind of work it's doing for your broader argument. Um, And the other part of that question uh, would be, how does melancholia differ from mourning?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I have a few different... um, Understandings of melancholia that are um, ultimately at play in the book. You know, first and foremost, you know, my understanding of the term um, melancholia is, um, uh, you know, uh, is famously understood as um, mourning that refuses to end, and so it's a, you know, as um, theorized by Freud and other psychoanalysts um, who are, you know, very important in my work. Morning needs to come to a natural end. You know, you replace an object of loss. You know, um, through the um, through the adoption of of a, of a new object, and so the loss ends. Um, and and the morning period is um, the morning morning as a period. Um, can last for a, quite a long time, but, one, but but the thing that signals that the morning is lost is uh, that the morning is over is that um, that the subject has replaced this loss with a new object. Um, melancholia is the refusal to replace that loss or to find a, um, a commensurate object to fill that in. Um, and so um, it's really significant for somebody like Freud that um, while mourning was um, the end of mourning, you know, signaled um, the ability of the patient to enter back into proper society by the end of World War One. And, you know, for somebody like Manon and for Freud and for Butler, um, who are all drawing from a very similar tradition, the... The grand wars and the kind of traumas that they in um, that they enacted not only on the individual but on the broader society made a kind of replacement or um, a replacement of that loss with something else impossible. Melancholia became a much more um, not necessarily a socially um, acceptable, but it became but it was seen as something that um was rational um, and could exist in. Um, you know could exist um, you know uh, simultaneous with a kind of a you know uh, kind of a civilized society um I mean, it was not um it was not seen as something that was outside of time or belonging to an uncivilized space and you know um and and I say that this kind of dual recognition of both mourning and melancholia as being a modern condition existed, but it's still quite stigmatized um and it's really not until um the 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 1960s with um you know a Franz fanon and his work particularly in wretched of the earth where you really begin to see the um the the um the unending nature of mourning particularly as it's related to um, subaltern groups or to insurgent um, populations becomes a much more um a popular and important kind of a theoretical apparatus um The idea of racial melancholia, um, which is uh, coined by uh, David Eng, becomes really important for him um in his first book um, um, as he's uh, trying to, you know uh, you know give a, give a language for understanding the ways in which um, Asian immigrants are, on the one hand, expected to be able to um, assimilate and want to become a part of the national whole, but at the same time are unable to do so. Um, and that inability to do so, you know, as he argues, is, you know, due to white supremacy and the, the legacies of exclusion, which are really central for maintaining the um, the, the, the U.S. Um, racial state and the kind of racial hierarchy. And so he terms that um, racial melancholia to um to I think uh signal the on the one hand the continual operation of white supremacy, which denies certain bodies inclusion into the nation state and then blames them for their failures to be able to assimilate. And also on the other hand, to highlight this legacy of a militarism um, and the state violence that uh that produces uh subjects at constant states of melancholia, um, um but but who Due to their melancholic nature, um, might sometimes be um, disavowed by the state itself, um, and so that's the kind of legacy in um, the Asian American and the Asian diaspora context. You know, um, I think recently, particularly because of the um, the rise of um, you know Black Lives Matter, but particularly the visibility of the, the the visibility of, you know, black bodies in pain, you know, you see that um, actually, I mean, you know, I'm narrating this kind of wrong, but, you know, um, there's also been a concomitant theorizing and I'm thinking through of racial melancholia in African-American and African diasporic, um, you know, um, studies. And so I think that whereas the idea of melancholia has been applied to the US racial context, it hasn't really been applied transpacifically to really think about the kind of um, oceanic losses, you know, in the ways that the Trans Pacific Studies um, has, um, has, you know, thought about this topic a little bit, you know, longer and deeper. Paul Gilroy, um, Christina Sharp's recent work in the wake. Um, the kind of rumination over um, Emmett Till's um, body and his mother's, um, you know, decision to have the casket remain open, and so, you know, um, it, so one of the things that you know I, um, so one of the things that's really significant about the idea of racial melancholia is that it is deep and long in many um, intellectual traditions, but it's really not until um, you know, David Eng's work. And again, the kind of shift in Asian American studies from thinking just about the nation state, but to thinking trans specifically where I think this, um, idea becomes more important, um, and has this kind of political weight and, um, allows us to think about questions like afterlives and ruins and, um, ongoing nature of, um, of, 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 um, you know, militarism and colonialism.
1: Great. Yeah. Um... I um yeah I I definitely felt like um you know this concept of melancholia um is is so integral to the the whole of your book um and I could see how you know you're relating this to um uh, within the trans-Pacific context. Um, and, and le- yes, like you're saying, um, I think, um, the way that, uh, Eng has, uh, previously worked on it is, is within, um, within the U.S. tradition. So, um, it's quite interesting to see how that then, um, is applied in, in a more broader context. Um, and so, um, along this vein, um, sort Each of your chapters are a close analysis of uh, a work of literature and then one film. Um, And I wanted to ask, like, why these objects of study? Um, In other words, what does literature and film do to explain how postcolonial grief functions within communities of color in the U.S. and those abroad that were affected by Japanese colonialism and um, U.S. militarism?
0: Yeah, of course, thank you. You know, one of the things that I think ties all of these works together is that not only do they define a a past of violence and a present inability to move through, um, and so that's melancholia, right, that like there's this loss that this um, there's this loss that's expressed and a an, an inability or an unwillingness you know to be able to move through that loss to to sit with it I think in addition to that all the works that I look at also um, describe a fear of a future um, where violence will return and and so that's one of the um, you know it's uh, this you know this idea of dread forwarding you know that um, one of the things that an um, underdressed trauma can do can also Make you fearful that this future of violence uh, will return um, is, I think, the other thematic thing that um, ties all of my work together, ties all of the texts that I um, that I look at together. But I start with um, the Wretched of the Earth and A Fire in Fontana to um, to develop this concept of um, you know racial melancholia um, in the um, in the specific um, inquiry uh, to understand. The ways in which both Japanese and Korean diasporas in the U.S. are um, forced into silence, um, and how certain histories become verboten, and how that verboten nature um, can uh, lead to a generalized state of melancholia. Um, in the second chapter, I look at um, the Los Angeles riots and the notion of the interregnum through Saigu Gu and um, the Tattooed Soldier. And both of these texts are iconic texts. All of them are: *A Fire in Fontana*, um, Saigu um, *Franz uh, Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth*, as well as um, *Hector Tobars*' um, *The Tattooed Soldier*. And then, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to draw attention to how all of these texts are um, inter. How, how in all of these texts, this um, refusal to move on um, impacts both the narrative and also. Um, you know, the the political impetus behind the works that have not yet been um, discussed. And so I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted an opportunity to think about texts that are central to our discipline um, and to apply a new way of thinking through them. Uh, In chapter three, um, Trans-Pacific Noir, um, Trans-Pacific Noir, in some ways, that was my favorite chapter to write because I love film noir and I've always loved it even before I started to um, write this book. And one of the things that um, that I... I I discuss in that chapter is this notion of the hidden Korean figure, uh, which is found in, um, which is often found. It's a, it, the, the hidden Korean figure is often the kind of surprise um, in uh, many Japanese and Korean popular culture and um, novels. Um, um, and so, I was surprised to find such a hidden Korean figure in um, in in American film noir. Um, and um, and so that. Uh, you know and, and so I think that um in, in two uh in summer of the Digbachi by um by Naomi Hirahara which really first um you know inspired um inspired the inspired that chapter and then um again in um um uh you know in, in the in the numerous references to um Chinamen and um you know and others that you see in um you know in um in, uh, noir in general, but in the Crimson Kimono in particular. And so I wanted to think about how these you know, hidden Korean figures um, you know, linger and you know, make a genre like Noir, which is already melancholy, even more melancholic. And then I end with Teresa Raleigh and um, uh, uh, Jose Watanabe's um, Antigona for several reasons. I wanted to um, elaborate on how our current framing of the Trans-Pacific, which is both a um, both an attempt to Asian American studies and um, rendering of the Trans Pacific, which is both an attempt to recognize that we fly over the ocean, but I think we always do so anyways. That you know, um in in almost all of the, the recent theorizing that I can think of that uses a Trans-Pacific, you know, the ocean is still flown over unless you have somebody like Keith Camacho and um Shigamatsu's um, you know, military currents, which Where the the the, um ideas are centered on the islands, it's uh, entered centered on the islands or the indigenous populations themselves. Um, and so I um, on the one hand, I wanted to uh, draw attention to that phenomena, and also how the um and how also to connect the the framing of the Pacific Rim, which um you know connects um across the trans-Pacific and across the Americas and the Asia's um you know in in a different way to um. Um, as as a different iteration of um, how we can think about the the living on of 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 loss, and so so yeah, so those are the those are the reasons that I brought those particular. Great, texts yeah, together.
1: thank you so much. Um, I, I'm about to now get into all of these specific chapters, actually. So that was a nice uh, that was a nice uh, overview of of all of them. Um, so in terms of uh, so the first chapter, um, you talk about. Um, this, this is the France Fanon and, um, he saw Yamamoto's, uh, short story, Fire and Fontana. Um, and, um, you talk about melancholy violence, um, which you draw from France Fanon. Um, and, um, I wonder if you can explain this term a little bit more in relation to the story, uh, uh, by, uh, Yamamoto, uh, th- that, um, in which a Japanese American journalist uh, is feeling guilty over her inaction when a black family perishes in a fire um, that, um, that is due to suspected racism. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, uh, Fanon is developing this, this idea of um, melancholy, uh, melancholy violence throughout all of his work, but it really comes to fruition in Wretched of the Earth. And this is because of his work as a psychiatrist at Jeanville in Jeanville um, in Algeria, where he was working with both the um, the Algerian insurgents and the, of the French um, occupying um, uh, colonialists. And one of the things that really changes in his work while he's there is that he begins to recognize, and this goes back to my idea of dread forwarding, begins to recognize that... Um, that for all of the um, the people that he treats, there is a reactionary psychosis, which is not something that's confined to the past. It won't be healed by um, by um, addressing uh, a past trauma, but it has to anticipate that this uh, that this past trauma is continually going to um, impact the person's perception of the future. And so he has a really famous. Um, diagnosis that he does with the, um, the daughter of one of the French generals. And she, um, is not only haunted by the sounds of, uh, of torture that she hears coming from her home, but then she also um, dreams it and imagines it as something that's going to be a part of her life forever. Um, and that and, that, and she imagines that it's, uh, you know, it, it's something that comes to her from the future, and um, and this would shift his idea about a melancholia, um, and the nature of violence related to melancholia. That melancholia is a state of being that can only be removed for colonized people through revolution and revolution will always require a certain amount of violence. And so, um, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's with this work and this kind of thinking where um, I think Fanon, uh, you know, becomes quite, um, you know, the position of the the way that Fanon uh, theorizes violence is often quite controversial. People like to, Think about Fanon and you know take insight from um, his work as more metaphorical um, and um, want to dismiss the idea that he you know in some ways advocated for violence and so I think that thinking about melancholia in Fanon always leads to the conclusion that certain kind of violence is necessary in order to get rid of this generalized state of melancholia um, and so I so I was I was really fascinated by um, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, his work is central to the book as a whole. But I was really fascinated when I was reading *A Fire in Fontana*, which I had read, you know, many times. It's a kind of um, ca- his Yamamoto's work, and and the article, her article, in some ways is, um, you know, re- really canonical. But I was really struck by how, in this story, one of the things that um, that um, that impacts her is not just this fear. Um you know, just this um regret that um that she had not said something about this family who had died. She knows that they were likely murdered and that um and that they had come to her and 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 that the father had come to her to ask her for help um She's not just traumatized by the fact that she was silent then, but she's also you know quite afraid in the story that this uh that this past um failure will continue to be. Her future that she will always act in a way that um, that um, that that fails, you know, when it comes to um, you know anti black racism, and so um, I, you know, so in thinking about that kind of uh, melancholy violence and this fear that um, that Japanese American uh, refusal to um, act, you know, as an ally for African Americans might dog um, the um, the. Japanese-American or the Asian-American, you know, future um, political formation, that it might be, um, that it, that it might be, um, you know, staved off. Um, it's what maybe want to, you know, think about the two works together. And, you know, for me, um, particularly when Because of when Yamamoto was writing, because she was writing at a time as the Japanese American community was trying to grapple with this legacy of internment um, and questions about reparation and memorialization, all of which are really central to the processes of mourning and melancholia and and public melancholia, um, uh, that um, that it seemed to make sense to me. Um, And you know, I I recognized the work that she was doing as a kind of as a kind of, um, melancholy violence making, um, in a 1980s time period where that was not a, a period where, um, revolutionary activity was not normal, you know, not in the same way that, you know, when Franz Fanon was writing in the 60s and 70s, when arguments about violence due to melancholia, you know, seemed to make immediate sense um, as a part of a kind of a larger revolutionary um, thinking. When is writing in the 1980s, the community that she's described, that she's working with is really kind of thinking about ways of closure and, you know, um, and acceptance and, and moving on. And she wanted to foreclose that. And that was foreclose that um closure um that that's terrible uh, she wanted to you know shut down the idea of closure she wanted to keep the future open and that was a kind of melancholic um political vi political violence and um, Great. I wanted yeah. to draw attention um- to that.
1: That's a really interesting connection actually. Um, I, yeah, I, I, um, in terms of thinking about, you know, that sort of relationship to, you know, revolution and closure, um, and how, you know, you're bringing one time period, um, with another, um, and, and putting them in conversation like that. Um, and yeah, it makes, it makes total sense to me. Um, uh, I, I think, um, yeah. So then in thinking about, um, you know, U.S. militarism um, in the Pacific, um, Los Angeles wouldn't be the first place people may really think of. Um, but you actually use the L.A. riots of 1992 uh, to rethink how U.S. militarism resonates in the lives of African-Americans, but also more particularly in Korean and Guatemalan immigrants. Um, and along this vein, you um, What is racial cognitive remapping and how does the notion of interregnum, um, which you define as, quote, a cessation or break in normal political power and social order, um, complement this notion?
0: Of course, thank you. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I just wanted to um, add to you know something I forgot to um, to say in the pre about the previous chapter, that um, one of the things that I think that uh, somebody like Yamamoto refusing to concede that the discussion about reparations is over um, in the 1980s i think one of the things that that does is that it anticipates the transpacific redress movement um, in the 1990s um, and figures like mike honda who were central to you know who are a part of the um the people that um you know that um the yamamoto is trying to influence and you know and have conversations with um you know about um the need to um, to do you need to have a more radical reconceptualization of you know reparations will become central in discussions over um, the comfort women and the role that the us and Japan should play in that. And so I, I think that um you know I, I, I think that that moment of you know of Yamamoto's writing is just so significant because it opens up the community for, um, you know, the, the sort of future movements that I write about later. But um, in terms of the, so, you know, the first thing that you said is that people don't normally think about Los Angeles as a center of U.S. military empire. And I think that that's a part of the problem, you know, because um, I think that, you know, often it, perhaps it might be Hawaii or uh, maybe Okinawa or, you know, places of U.S. military bases that might uh, maybe perhaps more immediately signal, um you know, uh, you know, US militarism in the Pacific. But of course, you know, we make um, a great deal of, you know, weapons and manufacturing in Los Angeles, you know, which um, is central to the US military apparatus. And, you know, one of the things that I write about in both Sai Gu and the Tattooed Soldier is that um, um, Hollywood and US um, cinema acts as a de facto um, soft, you know, um, military um, um, you know, uh, military and colonial, um, you know, tool for um, in both, um, you know, Central America and in the U.S. And we know that that's sometimes quite directed that, you know, um, that the U.S. military and Hollywood often worked together in order to produce the kind of narratives that would, um, you know, um. Uh, entice or ease, you know, the idea of being colonized by the U.S. And so I, you know, I think that one of the things that um I wanted to be able to do in my book is to um to really centralize um to uh, to really centralize Los Angeles as a, both an ideological but also a military apparatus um you know um you know a center of U.S.'s military empire and also as a place that really um. You go, as a place that really facilitates and you know trains, um, you know these uh, different um immigrant groups that that might become the soldiers for the U.S. But um, but yeah, you know, I never really thought that I would write a book. Of, I would write a book about um, you know, racial mel- melancholia, and then focus on um the L.A. riots through the tattooed soldier and saigu but the. The more I read the text, the more I was compelled to do so. Um, and in some ways, it's a kind of like comparison, like I did with um, um, Franz Fanon and uh, Hisai Yamamoto in the sense that both Saigu and um, the tattooed soldier in different ways um, center the role that the Past of military violence um, in Guatemala and then in Korea um impact the ways that they live through and interpret um the Los Angeles riots and you know that was really fascinating for me you know um and it again goes back to my interest in understanding how it is that the immigrant and the diasporic populations um hold on to memories um that are supposed to be verboten particularly military memories particularly memories that um indict the US um um and particularly about um, you know war violence that it has yet to be held accountable for, um how they hold these histories, and um the l a riots for a variety of reasons was one of those moments in the tattoo soldier and saiigu um that where their particular histories of military um of being colonized um the the specific uh, violence of neoliberal violence of um, this hierarchy, the ways in which um, different racialized bodies are hierarchized and you know placed into playing different roles um, in a neoliberal economy in um, Los Angeles, and the ways that, in which that directs the um, uh, you know anti-black or anti you know Latino racism, for example, in um, you know immigrant communities and vice versa, um, you know all of those events come together um, in both of these texts. And it's specifically because the state is absent. It's the interregnum is when the state is absent. And, you know, um, it, it's a, it has a, you know, it's, it's one of those old, you know, Roman laws where, you know, basically um, it, it delineates what is supposed to happen when the king dies because, or the king or the, the sovereign dies, because um, supposedly the sovereign gains their power only from um you know from god and so when they die how are you supposed to um how are you supposed to you know find a uh, find a new sovereign and so the interregnum is this uh dangerous period if there's no clear um genealogy or lineage um that's um you know that's um, that's laid out and so you know uh it's a dangerous period there's it's a period in which the state is absent um uh, it means that either the population or the senators or somebody else, somebody illegitimate can, you know, claim power. Um, and so, um, the, although, um, none of the actors, you know, neither the Central American or the Korean Americans or African Americans were able to necessarily become the new sovereign or fill in the interregnum through their own, um, uh, become the new leader per se. Um, this period, not only this period of sort of lawlessness and sort of state absence, not only enabled um, the resurgence of these memories, but, you know, um, after the LA riots, certain things certainly changed in Los Angeles where um, actually that's not very true. I mean, certain things changed for a a very short period of time where um, particularly Korean American and African American communities built some, um, alliances and links between them, but there was nothing sustained on the state level, um, beyond the first two years that, um, that, um, that really, uh, you know, encourage any kind of healing. And so, so yeah, so, so I draw on the term interregnum to think about, um, the absence of state power, um, how state power has always been absent, particularly in, um, you know, um, in, um, Predominantly Black communities um, in Los Angeles, and how the nature of filling in for that loss of of state power is still uneven, and in in many ways it is a state of absence when it comes to um, dealing with any kind of the social, political, um, economic, or the kind of cultural needs of you know aggrieved groups in um, in Los Angeles. Um, so yeah, so those are the those are the reasons that I. That I focus on the um, idea of the interregnum as a way to um, to understand what was happening in these texts and how these commu- and how and why the Los Angeles riots in particular became this moment not just for violence and destruction and breaks between communities but also a kind of um, you know new community building between ethnic groups and also between. Um, these communities and um their diasporic communities itself, and that's a part of what guides the notion of racial cognitive mapping. I draw from the uh, the idea of cognitive mapping from Frederick Jameson um who is um himself looking at um a scholar whose name just escapes me for a moment but um but you know they're both thinking about Baltimore and what happens to a city as it becomes um uh, Deindustrialize as it becomes as as a center of economy and production is no longer situated in a particular city, but that it becomes dispersed. Um, One of the things that uh, for Jameson, that's alarming about um, you know uh, cognitive mapping the which requires which then breaks down and forces a new cognitive mapping. There's no longer the um, you know uh, there's no longer the um, you know uh, the traditional you know, factory that might have signal for you that this is the prime economy of Baltimore that no longer exists. You know, um, when that doesn't happen anymore, you now need to create new kind of um, cognitive maps or cognitive anchors to um, to recenter yourself. And um, for Jameson, he felt a certain amount of nostalgia and kind of sadness about the loss of these national cognitive um. Um, anchors and mapping, but what I saw in Tattooed Soldier and Gu is not so much of a loss or a sadness about the um about the erosion of the the nat- the, the national cognitive um, anchor, um, but a need to recognize that those um, that the that the national boundaries of cognitive anchors have always been racialized um, and that um immigrants uh, bring you know, cognitive mapping that is global and also connects the diaspora, you know, to disparate sites. And it's, again, not just um, bound to Los Angeles. And so um, one of the things that I talk about in terms of a racial cognitive remapping in both of the texts is um, the ways that um, both the protagonist in the tattooed soldier and also in this in, Sa- in Saigu talk about how they felt like they knew the United States even before they got here because they had seen it unfold in movies or um you know remittance centers um place you know um Guatemalan refuge, uh, Guatemalan um, immigrants might send um home you know money or you know other kinds of needs through remittances remittance centers that again um re uh, That displace what you might think about traditional
1: geographical
0: markers um, and forces a kind of a a racial cognitive remapping.
1: Very interesting. Um, Yeah. Um, So, uh, okay, yeah, I'm just digesting everything you're saying. Um, So... um, When you also, and and then um, sort of moving on to chapter three, uh, um, you make a very interesting argument um, for what you call trans-Pacific noir. And that's interesting that you say that this is, uh, you know, you're the funnest sort of, or you really enjoyed writing chapter three as well. Um, It's funny how like you can kind of sense it as a reader, Um, but uh, you, 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 um, you also note, and I quote, um, what I identify in trans-Pacific noir is a genre full of broken and degraded bodies, which makes visible the necropolitic, um, that structures us military dominance in the Pacific arena during and after world, the world war II era. Um, and you use the film the crimson kimono and Naomi Hirahara's novel summer of the big bucky, uh, Pachi um, as your primary object of analysis. And, um, you speak more to this concept of the necropolitic as well as, um, what you've already mentioned a few times of, uh, this concept of dread forwarding, um, which I believe you, um, uh, pulled from Grace Cho's work, um, and in which a new trauma can trigger an older one, uh, inducing both a flashback, but also a flash forward in these works, um, so, yeah, I wonder if you can kind of speak a little bit more to that, um, because it seems to me, um, you know, this concept is is quite also very important in addition to melancholia. You know, they all kind of work in concert with each other, obviously. Um, so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, um, I... I've always loved the genre of noir. And I think that one of the things that um, I really wanted to do in this chapter is to um shift our focus. Um, traditionally, noir scholarship um has, you know, really developed this idea that um film noir is developed in the US in conversation with what with with what's happening in Europe. And so particularly, um, you know, German and French, um, you know, um, impressionism and, um, the cinema culture that's developing out of the hardships of world war two, you can definitely see a lot of the um, intersections between them. And, um, You know, people like, um, you know, Joseph von um, Sternberg in the Shanghai Express, um, you know, is often um, mentioned as a kind of a precursor to, um, you know, a popular um, American film noir, um, film noir, uh, you know, directors. But, you know, it was very clear to me as I was Watching, you know, um, these movies and reading these novels that much more so than oriented toward Europe and might have been that, you know, stylistically and also perhaps because many of the directors and writers had fled Europe, that um, stylistically that there might be something to be said about the connections between the two. But the subject matter for noir is all transpacific. It's all about what's happening in a um, across, um um across the Pacific. And so, you know, I um I talk about um, you know, uh, you know, James Kane's um double indemnity and um and um you know uh it, it, the ways in which um the the novel itself is focused on um you know the Filipino um you know uh, houseboy, you know, who takes care of him, you know, which is um changed by the time it makes it to the movie. Um, and so, you know, so one of the things that I really wanted to do was to think about how, um, how our orientation for film noir scholarship is just wrong, you know, to think about it in relationship to what's happening in Europe, just, you know, immensely, um, you know, misses the mark on the, um, on the influence that, um, what's happening across the Trans-Pacific, um, has an American, um, in one of the most formative um, American genres of the time. And um, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me that film noir would be the genre in which we are dealing with the verboten nature of U.S.'s military um, occupation and expansion in the Pacific. And noir is full of broken, degraded um, bodies. It's a play on bodies. um, Bodies in noir... um, I, you know, are often, you know, stylized through, you know, the particular ways that they're shot, um, you know, the, the kind of black and whites that might, you know, obscure a face. Um, and so that you just see a part um, to, um, you know, to finding out that the person who is, you know, truly the most evil, you know, has some sort of a, a physical defect or, or, um, you know, is, is sort of broken in one form or another. So it may, it, so on the one hand, so on many ways it makes sense to me that, you um, that um, Noir's history and relationship and inspiration across the Trans-Pacific is hidden, um, because I think that is um, it, that makes the case for me that that is a nature of our um, of U.S. Uh, relationship across the Trans-Pacific, um, and that it was really important for me to get the opportunity to you know think about um, the the kind of Trans-Pacific history that that's here, um, and then. I I don't remember the um other part of the question but um but thinking about the and, and so that's what um that's what leads me to move from Crimson, Crimson Kimono where there's a you know a hidden Korean um um that the that the that the Japanese American protagonist you know in some ways just you know can't speak of you know um one because um he's not really supposed to be able to speak Japanese um that uh, means that he failed um in being properly um Americanized as a result of World War II and also because of of the um the ongoing Korean War that was happening, you know, um that the that um the Crimson Kimono is uh, is thematizing. So, um so Crimson Kimono gives me one opportunity to, to think about this surprising and unexpected hidden Korean. And then in Naomi Harahara Summer of the Big Bachi, uh, and Bachi is sort of loosely translated as what goes around comes around. Um and um I I do a little bit of connecting that to the Korean um Dreadwork Han, but I think that they're a little bit different. I think that the temporality is different um and you know and in thinking about how um hirahara uh makes explicit you know this um subcurrent this undercurrent you know this thing this um thing that sustains american um genre of noir itself Um, and so, I, so I, I was just really fascinated in um, following that throughout history and seeing the ways in which um, these, you know, two very different um, authors, auteurs, you know, um, treated that topic.
1: Great, yeah. Um, so the second part of that question was about dread forwarding and how that related to Chapter 3 specifically.
0: Yeah, yeah. Dread forwarding is a concept that um, Grace Cho um uh, you know, gets and she is, um, she, like many um, Korean, many diasporic scholars interested in questions of gender and war in Korea, um, are, you know, thinking about um, particularly the scholarship that's coming out of the Holocaust. And so Abraham, um, Abraham Totok, uh, Marianne Hirsch, um, you know, um, these figures who are theorizing post-memory, you know, um, and the, the ways in which the violence of the past continues to live on is really important to Grace Cho's work. And, uh, one of the things that, um, that she is, um, you know, arguing is that in, um, many of the testimonies that of the um the korean children or um the survivors of the korean war that they similarly have this orientation to the future that is dreadful um, because the traumas of the past are verboten or not allowed to be spoken of, um, they uh, come back. Um, and it's sort of like, um, and they come back and you imagine, imagination is something that um, will repeat again in the future. Again, um, much like Fanon's notion of the reactionary psychosis, you know, which is not just, um, which is not just lay in the past, but is also something um, that influences um, your orientation to the future and thus shapes what is possible or impossible about uh, what is possible or impossible for you to imagine as a, um, as a future politic. Um, and so, yeah, dread forwarding. It's um, it's a, I would not say that it's something that you find in all noirs, but it is certain that it is certainly something that you find in um, some of the big bachi, And I would say in Naomi Hirahara's work in particular, and I think that is because she is actively working on these multiple legacies. She's thinking about her main, um, protagonist is a kibe. Kibe's are Japanese Americans who during the World War II era were sent to Japan. And this was a common occurrence before World War II. This was a way that Japanese immigrants ensured that their children were able to learn the language or stay in contact with their culture. Um, Her main protagonist is a kibe who um, went to Japan uh, right before World War II, um, right before the US got involved in World War II and lived through the bombing in Hiroshima. And so, after having survived, he's also a hibakusha, um, a uh, uh, an atomic bomb survivor. And so, as a kibe and as a hibakusha, he comes back to the United States, but no longer feels like a citizen. He's um, no longer feels like he has a sense of home. He's multiply displaced. Um, And in that displacement, he finds a certain kind of kinship um, with other broken and displaced people like him. You know, many of whom are also Japanese or Japanese American Kibes, um people who are displaced as a result of of um, internment but also um, other immigrants um, immigrant populations people who are refugees who he identifies with because of his work as a gardener by the time that the novel is set in the 2000s you know gardening in LA is no longer something that's um, you know primarily Japanese American but it's also uh, something that's being done by on Latinos and Chicanos. And so I think that in Kirahara, um, in working with a genre that really privileges the sense of the kind of dark and shady, the things that are unspoken, but um, but haunt us um, and might not just haunt, and it's not a haunting that just comes from the past, but it's a haunting from the future. Um, I think that all of those things are able to come up for her because of her turn to the genre um, and this specific um, historical figure of this Kibei Hibakusha, who is now a part of a multiracial, um, pluritariet, um, uh, community that, um, that these themes particularly come out. And, and, and so actually, uh, in terms of the the Hibakusha, uh, so, you know, um, people like Grace Cho, um, are, you know, thinking a lot about, um, you know, the legacies to, um, the Holocaust in World War Two, but of course the fear, you know, the, particularly the 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 fear that the future um, will be damaged as a result of you know radiation, um, that you know you will give birth to you know monster babies, um, you know, um, and, and this was something that happened to many, uh, many women after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, and so you know, um, and so this idea of dread forwarding in her novel is tied to all of those things, is sort of nuclear fear. Um, again, um, turning the focus on melancholia and racial melancholy on the Trans-Pacific as opposed to the Transatlantic. Um, and so, you know, the this kind of nuclear fear of a deformed future, you know, that ties with um, her main protagonist's um, you know, uh, you know, past of being um of being Japanese American in the United States and the kind of violent histories that he has to negotiate with. All of that stuff comes together in this this feeling that he's being haunted by the future.
1: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, Yeah. um, So then um, in terms of your final chapter uh, you, um, you use Antigone, um, Sophocles Antigone. um, And you mentioned this earlier in our interview um, and what is it, I guess, uh, about this story that upholds your argument um, about the production of a Pacific Rim imaginary uh, between the U.S. and Japan. Um, and then, in other words, like you, um, what is it about the story of uh, former Peruvian president uh, Alberto Fujimori's rule um, through the story of Laurie Berenson and also through Anne Patchett's novel, *Bell Canto, um, that helped facilitate the links to what you name as the Pacific Arena,
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I also really enjoyed writing this chapter and all the research that went into it. Um, I spent a lot of time. Ah, uh, one summer, um, I spent three months, um, uh, in Peru, um, doing research in, um, particularly in, um, what I thought was going to be a, a summer, you know, doing research and speaking with um Korean petit bourgeois, um, owners in, um in Latin America and then discovering that that is not my, um, that that is, that I was pulled, you know, into a different direction. Um, I was, um, you know, one of the first people that I interviewed when I got there and, 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 you know, I didn't include any of that in the book. It just sort of comes up as a part of all the information that, um, kind of the background, but, you know, one of the things that the, um, that the person that I was interviewing, you know, I I asked them, you know, what made you decide to come to Peru, um, to Lima, as opposed to the United States? And at that time, I was still really trying to understand, um, you know, uh, the legacies of, you know, um, the L.A. riots. You know, I I wanted to understand if, you know, what happened in L.A., the L.A. riots, if that ended up shaping um, the migration of you know I'm um, small business people, and um, you know the first thing that the um, that the woman said to me, she had changed her name, she was going by Carmen Kim, was like, you know, um, living here, um, especially under Fujimori, it was like I was living in a Korea of my parents' childhood, and um, and I asked why, and she said, you know, the reason that they came to Peru was not because of the you know, not because of anything that was happening in, you know, um, in Korea, uh, in the United States, but because um, Alberto Fujimori um, had reached out to the Korean population in both Korea and Japan. Um, you know, at, although he's a Peruvian, uh, you know, um, president, he played very much on the kind of cultural um capital he had across Asia and how he could make Peru the new tiger. And tigers were the terms that were economic tiger. And the term economic tiger was one that was given to Korea and Japan to celebrate their quick rise out of, you know, um of, you know, um, you know, economic destruction. And so, you know, he had promised that, you know, that Peru can be the new, um, Latin American tiger. And, um, and one of the things that he did was that he, you know, um, reached out and, you know, tried to encourage not just big capital, um, you know, big companies like Samsung, um, and also, you know, Japanese companies, um, to, um, invest in Peru, but also petit bourgeois and small business people, um, in both Korea and Japan to, um, to, um, uh, you know, to to settle and to um and to um you know build homes there. And so the 1990s is a kind of a weird time in Peru because it is a time of intense violence. Fujimori really upped the game. One of the things that um he did to try to entice all of this foreign capital was to promise that um state that terrorism um you know was over between 1970 and until about 1995. Um Peru was involved in a massive civil war between the Maoist insurgents and the um, and the military state. And Fujimori is credited for ending that period, uh, pretty much um, decapitating the Sendero Luminoso um, and Tupac Amaru um, by the mid-90s. But he does so only by becoming a cruel authoritarian dictator himself um, and instituting disappearances, um, uh, making himself pretty much, you know, the judge in the judge and jury and ruler of all things. Um, it was a very uh, dangerous and um, scary period that at the same time was one in which um, a lot of immigrants from Japan and Korea were moving to Peru and settling. And so um, I, you know, I, I, I found myself, um, you know, as I've done a lot of things with a lot of my, um, you know, academic journey, you know, finding myself, you know, wanting to understand this figure, you know, this Fujimori figure, this person who has a pull across the Trans-Pacific, who can make Koreans and Japanese come to Peru, despite the fact that Peru is a Latin, you know, a Latin American country. And, you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, Mrs. Kim, Carmen, um, speaks about as well, you know, before, you know until peru had a japanese face it never even occurred to them that it was a place that they wanted to go to um and so um you know so for me i you know uh, wanted to do a few things i think that um uh and 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 then of course um uh, peru has one of the most unique histories in that it was also, the only country in Latin America that not only also interned their Japanese Amer- Japanese Peruvian populations, but then also sent them to the United States to be um, interned as well. And so, um, there's a there's still a small population of Japanese Peruvians who became stateless when they were um, displaced from. Peru to the United States, um, and never got their citizenship to Peru back, um, and remained stateless for you know several decades in the United States. You know they're a part of this larger story about reparations, um, this larger story about memorializing and thinking about internment and the World War II era period and the violence that the U.S. military um, expansion across the Pacific has on the Japanese diaspora. That. That I think is the kind of work that Yamamoto in the first chapter is, you know, I'm trying to argue is trying to stave off, you know, to try to um, stop memorializing until all of the violence has been accounted for. You know, for example, I mean, so i so I, you know, so when I first learned about Fujimori, I was like, oh, my God, there's just so much there. And it exceeds my ability to frame it you know at first i was really interested in you know approving korean immigrants in los angeles you know and whether they identify themselves as latino or not um, and then the chapter became about much more the kind of um, the, the broader implications of the us uh, construction of the pacific rim as a way to connect the countries in latin america the united states north america um and asia um and the way that peru participated in that Pacific Rim construction, um, both clearly connected to U.S. military legacies and that kind of history, but also um, through its own auspices. Um, and that's connected specifically to the violence of nation building um, in, in Latin America. And so, so I, so I wanted to do All of that. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier in the discussion about the Trans-Pacific, it was really important for me to recuperate the idea of the Pacific Rim because it has been such um, one, a kind of an economic term and um, or or seen purely through an economic lens and not through a kind of a cultural, um, you know, cultural or a military position. And Chris Connery writes about this a lot, you know, um, the way that the, the idea of the Pacific Rim was meant to kind of soothe, um, from this kind of, um, fears and anxieties about, you know, American reputation as, um, as, 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 as a, as a colonialist overseas. But, um, but, but, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do was in, you know, expanding this notion of the arena was to recognize the kind of, you know, a uh, cultural work, um, that goes into constructing, um, the Pacific Rim. And so Bel Canto and, um, Antigona do very different work. Um, Bel Canto, um, Anne Patchett is, you know, very famous and beloved, and I think that a Bel Canto is very problematic um, in the ways that it represents um, what's happening in Peru um, as a part of a, you know, the country Peru is never named um, it um, in the novel. Um, it describes the um, the Japanese embassy takeover. Um, in uh, by uh, Tupac Amaru but you know uh, never identifies it as such, you know, and it becomes a kind of a romantic backdrop it 's just another um, another story you know on which um, American lives can you know find some danger um, or you know meaning globally and and she describes it as such when she talks about how she first um, saw um, the members of um, the Maoist group Tupacamaru. Um, take over the Japanese embassy um, home that she saw it in her living room watching it and it, it gave her a desire to talk about something and to write about something that she didn't know anything about. Um, and um, Antigona and Teresa Raleigh and Jose Watanabe's um, uh, um, collaboration is in some ways a direct opposite of that. I would argue that um, Belcanto um, participates in the same economy that continues to erase, um, and may er, erase and disappears those who are disappeared. Um, and that Teresa Raleigh and, um, and, uh, and Jose Watanabe purposefully, um, working together. Um, and I think that Jose Watanabe really saw himself as a kind of representative of a different kind of, you know, Japanese ethnic, you know, than, um, than, um, than um, Fujimori was that their goal is to um, not just uh, make Antigone um, the the sister who refused to you know fight um, for her who refused to stop fighting for her brother. It was not just to glorify the Antigone figure, but also the Ismene figure, the sister, the bystander, um, the one who was um, too afraid to look away. And so um, I saw one work um, as Really doing that kind of Pacific Rim work of of hiding um, the U.S. role, uh, the, the centrality of the U.S. in the Pacific relations, Pacific Rim relations, and the ways that it mediates the relationship between Peru, places like Peru, Korea, or Japan, um, in part through the historic um, power that it has amassed throughout the Pacific Rim since the World War II, our militar- militaristically, but also a part of our um, as a part of the the uh, up as a part of the way that our global economic, um, you know, a uh, global e- economism has um, developed since the World War II era. But, um, uh, so so that's the kind of work that Belcanto is doing. It's a sort of anti-Antigone work, um, which, you know, contrasts to the kind of,
1: you know, making visible
0: that um, that both Raleigh and Watanabe are invested in.
1: That Yeah, that's really... Um... Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was, just, I was just taking some notes and I was like, oh wow. Um, that's, that's really so interesting. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, so this, this kind of leads me to, to your epilogue, um, and, um, you know, the epilogue on, you know, uh, watery graves, um, referencing the atomic bomb survivors of Hiroshima, uh, which includes scores of Korean hibakushas um, that you've already mentioned, um, whose bodies were washed up on shore and buried in unmarked graves um, by people living on Iki Island, um, an island that is situated between Japan and Korea. Um, you also reference this hello um ferry disaster of 2014, which killed 304 uh, primarily high school youths, um, of whom nine bodies are yet to be found. Um, So, And I couldn't help but associate this concept of watery graves uh, with the history of transatlantic slavery and the Middle Passage, um, in which enslaved Black bodies also pepper the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, You don't make any direct connection, but uh, can you speak more to this analogy of watery graves in the production? of postcolonial grief
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, the cover art comes from a Japanese feminist artist, um, Tomiyama Taeko, and it's, um, and it's called, um, the bottom of, at the bottom of the ocean, and it features, um, Korean comfort women who are imagined to have drowned. Um, but, um, but if you, um, but if you look closely at the image, you see that all the, although, um, their bones, they still have expression and that they, um, that that even though they're dead um, that they haunt us um, and that their haunting is not quite dead either. Um, And that in their haunting, you know, they're not, it's not just that they're memories, but you know, it's, it, it suggests that the materially, the materiality of their body still exists and that it, demands a, a reckoning. Um, and um, yeah, you know, so Watery Graves, that's what my uh, next project um, is really focused on. And I came to this concept uh, for this book because um, I felt like, and maybe this is the first book, I felt like I was not thinking unruly enough um, when I was doing this work. and um, And by that, what I mean is that I have you know I'm treading on um, several disciplinary areas, not all of which work very well together like Asian American studies and Asian studies for example or for or um, Pacific Islander studies or Latin American studies, um, none of which um, in particular I would say that Asian American Asian and you know Pacific Islander um, scholarships and studies have a particularly vexed relationship um, but you know, as I suggest, you know, they're you know, depending on the depending on the the field that you're looking at, um, you know, Asian studies and um, Latin American studies um, also have a lot of um, conflicts or um, you know, sites of incommensurability. And so, you know, um, as opposed to trying to work within these confines, you know, um, uh, Korean studies in particular is really you know um, tied to both the legacies of U.S. um, uh, rebuilding of education in Korea, but also this, you know, really a deep sense of, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, of, you know, um, national um, heritage that, um, you know, that um, holds, you know, Asian American studies or Korean American studies to be, you know, um, to be hostile or that it's suspicious of. So anyways, I, you know, um, I was thinking about the idea of watery graves because um, the Seoul Ferry had just happened um, and, um, I had also been keeping account sort of, you know, um, while I was finishing this first book, I, you know, I've been, uh, sort of putting into a, a little box, you know, um, anytime I would hear notices about, um, bodies that have washed up from the ocean, um, particularly the Pacific and the, and the kind of reactions that they've gotten to them, the, the kind of reactions that, um, that they bring for the people who find the bodies. And so I've been, you know, keeping a kind of a you know a small box, um, you know, of these ideas. You know, with the with the thought that it would be a part of a future book project. And so, um, so I kind of end this book with an invitation to, for myself, um, to think more on, in to think in a more unruly way, to um, to um, to try to open up questions as opposed to uh, kind of tie everything down and um, and the recognition that this kind of inquiry into that which is submerged that which is not um, that which um, is not a lot to be spoken of that which um, we don't even know um, to be spoken about um, that we don't even know our histories that need to be referenced um it seemed to me a kind of um, an exciting way to um, end on, you know, watery graves in in that way, in that kind of intellectual way. Um, this whole fairy disaster, this whole hoe, um, in particular, was um, important for me to end. Uh, my editor had suggested that I can just end it with the. Um, um, Obama's visit to um, Hiroshima, the the you know his, the historic um, act of the first sitting president of the United States to visit Hiroshima and to visit with the Hibakushas, it would sort of bring the book, um, in perf- you know, a sort of a perfect um, you know perfect circle or perfect end. But you know, um, one of the things that was really fascinating to me about the Hibakusha is that um, the Korean Hibakusha uh, challenged and threatened that narrative. There was no way that their um history could bring any kind of closure or healing because it implicates um not just the US military bombing as a kind of a, a terrible thing that happened between two parties that were in the war, you know, um, you know, equally, Japan and the United States, but it involves this, you know, uh, colonized body that um who then become um, a part of the U S colony after world war two is over. And so that's a dilemma for the Hibakush the Korean Hibakusha that they, that their claims cannot be recognized by the United States or by Japan or, and, and has not, and was not so until starting the 1970s. And most of the claims are still not recognized. Um, you know, uh, due to all of the, the kind of record keeping and, and you know, and, and colonial machinations as I write about. Um, but that they, um, but they just, again, challenged the the will of certain stories to be shut, um, uh, shut down the possibility of leaving mourning and commemoration to the past, you know, uh, kept it open as something that's a an issue for now and, um, you know, possibly will impact the future generations. Um, and, um, and so, uh, you know, thinking about, the uh, Hibakusha and the ways in which they um kept the history open, you know, refuses the will to um to a kind of a closure um, was um was something that I really wanted to focus on. And um the Sewol Fairy, the bodies that uh, we talk about with this hell fairy, um, you know, uh, you know where they lie, their watery graves are, you know, likely pe- likely to be the same places where many of these hibakushas, um, as they were fleeing uh, Japan in the immediate days after um, Hiroshima, um, their bones are likely to be intermingled with that, um, and they may also be intermingled with the, the bones and the histories of the comfort women. Who um, died also fleeing um, on ships, um, Japan and in Indonesia and other places of Japanese of Japanese, um, of Japanese um, um, you know, empire during the World War II era, and so so yeah, I wanted to start with the Korean hipakusha, um, and to narrate how they um, cannot participate in any sort of um, closure, um, and then use it as an invitation to think about the other stories, the other watery graves, the, um, the other bodies, um, whose, um, you know, stories who, you know, the histories and the stories, which, you know, I hope to be able to tell in my next book.
1: What were the most difficult or unexpected aspects in the research and writing of your book?
0: Oh, gosh, um, what was the most difficult? You know, honestly, the hardest part was that I took it upon myself to basically learn about the entire world to write this one book. Um, and you know, I found myself going into all of these deep rabbit holes, you know, um, you know, when I was, um, you know, going into the violence of, you know, um, you know, nation state building in Peru, you know, um, and thinking about the tactics of disappearances, um, in Peru in the 1990s, you know, um, I, found myself needing to compare that with the scholarship about, you know, what's happening with this, with disappearances in Argentina. Um, And then when I was thinking about the, um, about Peru, you know, um, aspiring to be an economic tiger, you know, um, I connect that to, you know, um, Kenya aspiring to be um, Africa's, um, you know, um, economic tiger or um, the ways in which Korea became one. And so I found it because, it was exciting to be able to work on a project that um, really did truly allow me to be Trans-Pacific and Pacific Rim um, and connect to so many places. But I found it really difficult as a junior scholar writing my first book to know just how much it is that I'm supposed to know and how much I can leave behind. And so that just just sort of in terms of research and learning about history and like not feeling so and and now I know to not feel like you need to compare um, your historical object or context to so many other places I think that was in part um, what was at first difficult for me Um, and then I would say that the second um, thing that was hard is that I um, ended up publishing I ended up working primarily on um, almost all an English language text, even you know, um, you know, uh, the parts of um Watanabe's uh, uh, rally and Watanabe's text that I um that I worked with very closely were translated, but I was also working with a lot of primary material um, you know, written in Spanish and in Korean and um and that was very difficult. You know, I um had to make sure that my understanding or my translation was correct, and to encounter my limitations um uh, on on that level on the language level was very hard and it also made me wish that I also spoke japanese um and um i I think that in particular and so and and this is and but I'm also understanding that this is a kind of a deeper existential and um scholarly issue that um many immigrants and diasporic, you know, scholars have, you know, we are, um, to translate is to betray, you know, um, it's, um, and so I, you know, I think that the, the, the work of doing diasporic work while living not where you do your study, like, you know, for my next work, you know, I'm looking primarily at Korea, you know, doing this work and not living there, um, and having the language limitations, that was really the
1: toughest. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I guess uh, just kind of a a part of the follow up to that question, um, the length of your book is actually pretty short. Um, and I'm just wondering if that's like a publisher thing or, um, you know, if you felt like you had to reduce a lot of the material that you already had. Um, yeah, just, um, curious
0: yeah no, absolutely. Actually, it was much thicker, and then I ended up putting almost all of it into the footnotes um and I did that for and actually, the comments that I've gotten is that it's so interesting because it's like I have two lives like my the footnotes are quite lively, and um and i I took a lot of it out of the body, and I don't you know, I think in part it's just the way that I write. I like to write very lean um and I want to um try to streamline as much of it as possible. Um, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the side conversations or these kind of disciplinary, you know, discussions, um, you know, about what's happening in Asian American studies or Asian studies or how, um, somebody in Mexico might disagree about the use of the term, you know, Mestizaje, you know, versus in Argentina, a lot of that stuff was in the text. And then I decided to pull it out and put it in the footnote to, make it more coherent. Um it was not anybody else's decision but mine, um, I would say. Um and, and that was mainly it. You know, I, I wanted to yeah, I think I wanted to maintain a certain level of narrative coherency and make the um the arguments as clear as possible. Um and some of the um kind of going back to your question about what was difficult, you know, um I you know, found myself, you know, having, you know, pages of, um, you know, uh, debates between an anthropologist, you know, um, on, on, you know, on something. And it just didn't really seem like it seemed like it was important, but I didn't necessarily need it to have it in the body of the on, on in the body of the chapter. And, and yet, it was important enough that I felt like it needed to exist somewhere. And so I put it in the footnote.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, that's, um uh uh, yeah, I was curious about that because, um, your book is so rich and I was wondering like, oh, did she have a lot more and then she cut it down, um, or, you know, um, uh, yeah. So, and, and I did notice, um, you know, yes, your, your, um, your end notes are quite, um, substantive. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's very nice also for other scholars as they're reading through your work. Um. And so yeah so then um you know my final question which you've already alluded to is you know what what is your sort of future project that you're working on you mentioned watery graves um would you like to elaborate on that a little bit
0: yeah, absolutely. So it's changed a lot. Um, I, you know, like I said, you know, while I was finishing this book, um, kind of like I felt when I was writing my dissertation, by the end of this book, I just wanted to burn it, you know? Um, and um, I, um, I also wanted to burn my dissertation. Um, maybe that's a healthy impulse. But I, um, you know, started to, um, you know, I, I wrote this book because I wanted to understand the ways in which the Japanese and Korean diasporas in the U.S. narrated, you know, their histories, of their passive war um, in the U.S. And this book made me want to understand more the ways in which diaspora can also impact homeland politics, Um, in particular how the Korean diaspora can um, impact um, the can can shape and impact um verboten histories of the Korean War, World War II, um, as well as ongoing um, you know, military developments um you know happening in the Korean peninsula. Um and so um, you know, so in line with that, um you know, so 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 there's that one um part of it. Um and then I've also been um really fascinated um with, you know, various, and and then I've just been, you know, keeping count, you know, keeping a notebook of, you know, these various mentions of, you know, bones that wash up, or violence that happens, you know, in the ocean by, you know, near the Korean Peninsula. And so, you know, one is, you know, one of the ones that really, you know, caught my imagination is the ghost ships, you know, these um ghost ships that have washed up on the Japanese shore, likely um, you know, of of North Koreans who died um while fishing or trying to flee. Um they're the most recent um versions. But um also in um, in Guam, you know, recently as the the U.S. military base was trying to expand some of its um, territory, one of the things that they did was to you know dig up um, you know former um, you know grave sites that are you know significant to the Chamorro um, population, um, and then um, you know short stories and films um, you know happening in Korea and around the Pacific that, you know, are really focused in this idea of, you know, watery graves. And so, you know, starting from these sort of news accounts, um, I've, you know, also started to read um, Kathy um a selection of poems. Um, Iep, um, um, Iep Jotek, um, she's a um, um, she's Marshallese scholar, to um, Tomiyama Taeko's, um, you know, a series featuring, you um, um many she's a, a japanese feminist painter and many of her work um take place along um you know in the ocean um and um the the uh, the comfort women um being drowned but not dead um you know is is one of her series so um you know taking um her work um taking um uh, the korean um uh, film called haemu um, which is a a recent um uh, a movie that focuses on, um, the, the kind of trauma, um, and, um, um, and, you know, and violence, um, you know, around the Korean oceans in particular. And so, so I've just been collecting all of these, you know, um, and, and thinking about what it is that I'm going to do with them. And, um, and so, so tentatively it's called, um, you know, the unruly dead, um, and it focuses on, you know, the ocean as both metaphor, but also as a material history for the kind of war violence, capitalist violence, um, uh, um, indigenous histories that have gotten erased, um, or, um, that have gotten erased. And, um, I'm specifically interested in exploring it through a feminist, um, a trans-Pacific feminist, um, framework. Um, I think that, um, you know, feminism, um, and feminist framework have, you know, um, always been attuned to that which is silenced or, um, you know, seen as dark or submerged. And, um, and so I, um, so I'm deploying a trans-Pacific, you know, feminist uh, method to understanding these um, watery graves um, and these unruly dead and what it is that they do to our politics, our imagination, and the ways that we might be able to reconceptualize the relations across the trans-Pacific.
1: Great. Wow. Um, well, I can't I can't wait to, to, you know, see that in production at some point. Um, so, Jenna, thank you so much for speaking with us about your book. Postcolonial Grief, The Afterlives of the Pacific Wars in the Americas, published in 2019 by Duke University Press. Um, This was a very rich conversation. I really enjoyed it. um, And I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us.
0: Thank you, Laura. It was such a pleasure to talk with you too. Thank you for your wonderful questions.
1: Thank you.